0: Hello and welcome to the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast. Thank you very much indeed for tuning into this episode. Today is quite a special episode. We're going to talk about arguably the greatest TT race of all time on the Isle of Man. And the race in particular I'm referring to is the 1992 Senior TT when Scotsman Steve Hislop and Englishman Carl Fogarty went head-to-head around the mountain course. And the lead-up to this race and what ensued during the race uh, remains one of the most memorable parts of the history of the great race around the Isle of Man. Now, as there's, uh, there are so many intriguing facets to this story, and um, through the course of this podcast... I hope to try to tell you uh, a few of those stories. Of course, everybody, you know, any bike racing fan will be aware of this race, will be aware of Steve Hislop, and certainly will be aware of Carl Fogarty. But the story behind what led up to this race, um, I I found absolutely fascinating when reading into it a little bit more and watching the race back uh, as well, and watching two incredible riders uh, at the very top of their uh, of their powers so Steve Haslop and Carl Fogarty both enjoyed incredible success in their motorcycling uh, careers mainly in two um, although their paths did cross quite a bit and um, they did end up um, you know working they ended up finishing their career in different parts of the sport so you know, Steve Hislop was, was certainly the better um, road racer uh, than, than Carl Fogarty. Steve Hislop won 11 Isle of Man TTs from just 29 starts. And he has one of the finest winning ratios, um, start to win ratios of any rider in history at the Isle of Man TT. Uh, and was a regular lap record holder and lap record breaker uh, around, uh, around the Isle of Man TT mountain course. Carl Fogarty um, also won some TTS, but not not as many as Steve Haslop. But went on to win four World Superbike titles, and up until quite recently, when Jonathan Ray won his fifth title, what uh, he was the most successful World Superbike rider of all time. But back in the early nineteen nineties, he went over to the Isle, as many British Championship riders did. He went over to the the Isle of Man TT to compete. Steve Hislop also, after much success at the Man e. TT, he then, um, much was his ambition, was to make it to the World Championship. He ended up not making it all the way to the World Superbike Championship, but he did manage to win two British titles uh, in the Superbike class in 1995 and in 2002. Sadly in 2003, at the age of just 41, sadly we lost Steve Hislop in a tragic helicopter accident when uh, leaving from a friend's house in Hoyock, his helicopter suffered a mechanical failure and unfortunately um, Steve was was killed in in the accident and he'll be sorely missed. And to me, I, I truly believe he's one of Scotland's greatest sportsmen. And hopefully throughout this episode I'll be able to tell a little bit about what made Steve Hislop special uh, and how he contrasted in ca- very much in character and approach to Carl Fogarty, but how similar a result um, they both achieved while out on track. So really, the story of how this, uh, the, all of the prologue, all of the build up to the 1992 Isle of Man TT uh, senior race, um, actually started back in 1991. Steve Hislop and Carl Fogarty were paired together to race for Honda at the Isle of Man TT. Um, At the time, Carl Fogarty had suggested at the end of 1990 that he might not have returned to uh, the Isle of Man TT race, but he was lured back by Honda boss Neil Tuxworth um, to come and ride the Honda RVF. Now, the Honda RVF is one of the most coveted and exotic bikes Ever used around the Isle of Man TT course. At the time um, leading into the 1991 uh, TT week, Honda had won nine consecutive F1 TT races in a row. So at that time, the F1 was the, was the fastest bike out there, 750cc superbike machine, or what we would refer to as a superbike nowadays, the fastest machine that you would find um, racing at the TT. And Honda were, of course, desperate to ensure that they scored an unprecedented 10 wins in a row in this class. And when Honda set their mind to something, the the amount of engineering might and financial might that they have at their disposal is almost, I mean, it's unprecedented. And Mr. Aguma of Honda Racing Corporation, HRC, was sent over to the Isle of Man with two two completely one-off uh, Honda RVS that were produced particularly for the Isle of Man TT just for Steve Hislop and Carl Fogarty in the F1 TT race. And when these bikes rolled onto the island and Steve Hislop and um, Carl Fogarty went out in practice, it became very clear very quickly that they were going to be in a class of their own. To be honest, at the time, they were probably in a class of their own in, to, in riding ability anyway, or in form anyway, but the Honda RVF just it, it, it transported them into another another level. Now, the reason why I'm talking about the 1991 TT rather than the 92 right now is because it's very important to understand the build-up from 1991 and all the crescendo that built to the 1992 um, senior TT race. So in practice, for the nineteen ninety one race, it was it was it was being reported in the press that Steve Hislop and Carl Fogarty hated each other and they didn't get on, which actually behind the scenes was not true. In fact, actually, Steve Hislop uh, and his partner at the time, and um, Carl and his wife Michaela, was actually spent quite a lot of personal time together. However, and it's a big however, both were absolutely determined to beat one another. However the approach in which the way that both Steve Hislop and Carl Fogarty carried themselves is intriguing. Carl Fogarty is, you know, he is openly vocal of his confidence in his own ability. He's an incredibly confident man, fully in belief that he is the greatest rider in the world. And that 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 um, mindset unquestionably um, contributed to the success that he enjoyed throughout his career he would and he would push a bike beyond what it was capable of uh, and beyond maybe what was acceptable in terms of risk to be to be able to win he was just such a determined character and would and would have uh, make absolutely no effort to hide it in fact a lot of the time he would be make an extra effort to to tell anyone who would listen about how good he was and that was his style Steve Hazlop was completely different. He possessed exactly the same confidence in his ability as Carl Fogarty did, but he was much much more reserved, quite a typical Scotsman in in, in that way. He came from the borders, he came from uh, a little town called called Hoyk in the in the borders and you know, it was very very calm, very very gently spoken and his style on the bike was just poetic. I mean, he just so smooth. He looked when when Steve Hazlop was riding a superbike or an f1 bike at that time around the isle of man tt on lap record pace you could be fooled he was simply popping down for a pint of milk he was just had this most gorgeous smooth delicate riding style but devastatingly fast so coming into the 1991 race it was it was clear that it was going to be a head-to-head between hislop and fogarty a prelude to 1992 and in 1991 in Fogarty and Hislop started to, in practice, started to trade blows with one another. One would set in a 120 mile an hour lap, then the other would would raise the bar, then the others would raise it further again and so on. And the Honda boss, Mr Guma, who was sent there with a very clear mission to come home with the winner's trophy and with no excuse, um, uh, absolutely no excuse. There was no option. They had to win this race. It was very clear Instruction and Mr. Guma had apparently gone to watch during practice at the bottom of Bray Hill. Now, for for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Isle of Man TT course or the Bray Hill section, just type in type it in on YouTube Isle of Man TT Bray Hill Bray Hill spelled B R A Y and just watch in amazement. It's about it's a very very fast downhill left left hander. It's a very one constant radius left hander heading downhill almost into top gear by that point and and there's a big bump at the bottom of the hill where the riders are reaching around 175 miles an hour and it's i've i've, I've sat i've actually stood on, stood um on the wall right there at bray hill uh, back in 2013 and i've never seen anything more incredible in my entire life i'll be honest um so Mr. Aguma-san had gone to watch um, <laughs> had gone to watch Hislop and Fogarty coming through on these amazing, growling Honda RVS, and had seen them fly down and I think he nearly had a heart attack. So um, after practice, um, both Steve Hislop and Carl Fogarty were summoned to uh, a meeting where they were given a very, very big telling off from Mr. Aguma who said you two are not enemies um, y- Yamaha Kawasaki, Suzuki, they are enemies. You two, not enemies. So they were told at that point to decide who was going to win the race. So off they went, and they very quickly decided that um, they weren't going to decide there and then who was going to win the race. They were simply going to ride flat out anyway and see who won, which of course was the the way <laughs> the way to do it. In that Formula 1 TT race, Hislop employed a actually a different tactic to what he was used to he knew that he had to break fogarty's resolve so from the initial drop of the clutch on glen, glen road boom, he was off in the start line and he put his he put it a hammer down straight away and by the by Ramsey, which is only about 13 or 14 miles. He was already 5 seconds in the lead from Fogarty which was incredible. And the whole point of Hislop's theory there was was for Fogarty to see his pit board saying minus 5 and to break his resolve. And it worked. And Steve Hislop went out into the distance and uh, and, and, and won the race. In the senior race, later that week in 1991, um, Carl Fogarty had to return to the World Superbike Paddock uh, and actually, Joey Dunlop stepped on to um, the other Honda RVF. And in the senior race, Steve Hislop went on to win again in record time. So that was the build-up to, to, of the previous year in 1991. So at this point, Steve Hislop has won eight TTs, seven of those with Honda. He's also won the British 250cc championship with Honda. And at the end of 91 season as you know, the best TT rider uh, on the planet at the time Neil Tuxworth, the Honda team boss had promised uh, a, a programme where he would ride the Honda RC30 in the British Championship and also um, would race at the TT as well and it was a good package, good mechanics and all the, all the rest of it but as time went on and as the off-season got longer Steve Haslop still had no contract in his pocket so he started to follow up with Neil Tuxworth to try to find out what was going on and with little success and eventually when he, when he managed to reach Neil Tuxworth he was very quickly um, rushed off the phone. The next day a letter arrived at Steve Hislop's door basically confirming that his, his services were no longer required with Honda. And they, he had been replaced by Simon Craifer, who, For those of you who watch the MotoGP live feed, Simon Crafer is now the, um, the pit lane reporter uh, for MotoGP and and, and, the, um, and does all the Moto Voodoo um, track day um, instruction as well. Very, very good rider, Simon Crafer. Um, but Steve Hisslop was out of a ride. And of course, because he'd taken Honda on their promise, he'd left it too late in the day you know, it was far too late in the day to to try and find a ride. Luckily, he he managed to do a deal with Andy Smith from Yamaha UK and was able to put together a plan for um for nineteen ninety two. The plan was was that he was given a ten thousand pound retainer to race at the TT. That was the initial offer. But Steve Hisslop, he says, I, you know, I need, I need more than that. I want to progress to the British Championship. I want to give short circuit racing uh, and the British Superbike Championship uh, a proper goal. So eventually it was agreed that he would be given a £10,000 retainer to race at the TT. And he would be also be given uh, a 600cc Supersport bike and a 250cc Grand Prix bike for the other races at the Isle of Man TT. Also, he would be provided with a bike uh, for the British Championship, which would be run under the Tilston's um, Yamaha dealer team um, moniker. So the promise was that he would get a certain degree of equipment to race in the British Championship. But as the um, season began at Ulton Park, it became very clear very quickly that the bikes that arrived for Steve were very, very much below the standard that he expected. And a lot of the the special parts that would make the bike in, in Steve's view more technologically advanced and therefore faster were being hoarded by Rob McElney's official uh, Loctite Yamaha team, the factory team. Um, so after one round at Ulton Park, he was less than impressed because he didn't want to waste his chance uh, in succeeding in the British Championship, so... He he asked, and still no, no 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 more support came. So he gave out a Yamaha an ultimatum. He said, "If you don't give me the parts and you don't give me the support that you've promised me, I will not race for you at the TT, and I will return the ten thousand pound retainer cheque that you've given me." And Andy Smith at Yamaha believed that um, Steve Haslop was bluffing him and said, "No, you're you're not going to do that." And actually, it was quite a risk for Steve Haslop because. That was his only earning that year. Um, Yamaha were paying him for the TT, but he was riding in the British Championship for nothing, so he really needed the TT to win prize money to supplement his income. Hard to believe for someone who was the fastest man in the world around the LMN TT at the time, but such was the politics of bike racing. So, obviously, Steve Hyslop was incredibly frustrated by this response from Yamaha. So what he did was he got on the phone to a good friend of his called Michael Brandon, who worked for Abus Locks, as a German security company um, that had a base in Hoyt, where Steve was from. And Michael Brandon, at the time, was arranging for Abus Locks to sponsor the Kawasaki team in the British Superbike Championship. Luckily... At the time, Steve Haslop had signed for Kawasaki France to race in the World Endurance Championship. So actually, he had a set of Kawasaki leathers. So he got on the phone to Michael Brandon and told him the problems he was having with Yamaha and how he really needed to sort something else out. So Michael Brandon did some, made some inquiries and was able to secure a Kawasaki superbike for the next round at Donington Park. So a phone call was made to Andy Smith at Yamaha telling him that he was um, declining their offer to race at the TT. The cheque was back in the post, and they'll need to find themselves another rider for the British Championship. And when Steve Hidlop walked into the, the paddock at Donington Park for the second round of the British Championship, all of a sudden, every curtain in the paddock was twitching as he walked through the paddock in Kawasaki leathers, not Yamaha leathers. So, of course, in a paddock, it's like a small village... The word went round very, very quickly that Steve and Yamaha had parted ways. At this point of the story, this is where Norton came into the story, the bike that Steve eventually rode in this great race, the 1992 Senior TT. And team manager of Norton at the time, Barry Simmons, immediately pounced on this opportunity and he me, When when he spoke to Steve and learned of the problems he'd had with Yamaha, he desperately said, Oh, you must come and ride the Norton. That would be awesome. We've got to find a way to do this. And Steve, at the time, had his reservations about the Norton bike. At the time, Norton produced uh, a bike that had a 588cc rotary engine, which was incredibly fickle. And actually, had um, you could trace its origins. You wouldn't even have to trace that far back you could trace its origins back to um, police and military bikes that Norton sold to um, the public services only about five years previously. Uh, And at the time, Norton was not in the greatest financial health, which we'll come on to later in in the episode. And Steve Husslock believed he he didn't feel like the bike was was durable enough to make it round uh, the TT in the previous year, it had done in 1991 in the hands of Trevor Nation and um, I, and Robert Dunlop, but um, Steve believed that it wasn't up to the job for the Isle of Man TT. Racing at a, a, a short circuit in the British Championship was far different to racing around the rigorous 37.7 miles of the TT course. But at the time, Steve Haslop had no other options, and really he needed to go to the TT to 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 supplement his income and to, to to win some races and to win some prize money, he was also aware that he wanted to build his profile. He was obviously he was getting the results on track, but for whatever reason he wasn't getting the opportunity or he felt he wasn't getting the opportunities that he deserved, given how how well he was he was performing particularly at the TT. So he thought well. A British bike, ha, ha, you know, he thought this before the race. He thought, a British bike hasn't won the senior TT since 1961 with Mike Hillwood, And what a great story that would be and what great coverage that would get if a British rider like me won on the British bike. So he accepted Norton's offer. And basically, the deal was that he needed to find £25,000 in sponsorship to be able to get the bike to the grid. And that £25,000 in sponsorship was the entire budget. So tight were Norton's finances at the time. So again, the, the phone was picked up again to Michael Brandon at Abus Locks and to EBC Breaks. And Abus and EBC collectively came together with £10,000, which was brilliant. However, they were still a long way short of their desired budget. A deal was made with Manx Telecom um, for for the remaining amount, but sadly, this fell through at the very last minute, thankfully for Steve, uh, the Isle of Man government or the the Isle of Man tourist board were able to come come in with a, with a, a further ten thousand pounds of support, and at that point they had their twenty thousand pounds to go racing. Now Barry Simmons, at the time, he, you know, tapped away at his calculator, made some calculations, and thought, well. It's going to be very tight, but yeah, okay. Let's go racing with twenty thousand pounds. Now, there are bikes that compete in the Isle of Man TT today that you couldn't even buy the road version for twenty thousand um, pounds. It's just, you know, it's just extraordinary that they, that was their entire race budget—twenty thousand pounds—to go uh, to the Isle of Man TT. Extraordinary. Fogarty, meanwhile, um, he was uh, toiling away in the World Superbike Championship in 1992. He was running his own private team. He was running a private uh, Ducati uh, in the World Superbike Championship in a bid to get his name out there and to, to get signed by one of the big teams, which, of course, he did. He went on to win four world titles not long after this, but... He was really struggling for money at the time to keep this World Superbike effort going. And when Steve Hislop left Yamaha, Yamaha obviously required a top-level rider to take their bike to the TT. And who did they ask? They asked Carl Fogarty. They offered Carl Fogarty £7,000 to come over and and, um, take part in the race. And this was matched by the Isle of Man tourist board as well. So £14,000 was quite a lot of money in 1992. And Fogarty, although he'd vowed not to come back to the circuit um, uh, on the Isle of Man, he decided to do it to keep his, uh, his World Superbike program alive. Now, it's interesting, if you look back, you know, there's obviously... Anyone who is uh, an avid fan of the Isle of Man TT or anyone who's a casual observer and picks up a national newspaper and reads the sports section, you'll be well familiar with the stories of how dangerous the Isle of Man TT race is. You know, nowadays the riders are racing at 135 miles an hour average lap speed. At that time they were racing about 123, 124, but still incredibly fast between Brick walls, hedges, trees, uh, and unfortunately, there have been many casualties and many deaths um, over the course of the TT's history. Uh, and of course, as usual, every year there's the same, um, you know, the same clickbait articles that turn up, um, you know, calling for the event to be banned. I'm very much in, uh, I'm very much in the camp that the event should not be banned, but should never, ever, ever. Um, be we should never be complacent in terms of the safety that we could introduce into uh, into the sport. And of course, each um, each individual taking part does so does so in, um, by their own choice, and um, does so um, you know as the highlight of their year. A lot of guys who compete in the Isle of Man TT they will take their two weeks holiday off work to to go and do this, and will save up all year round to be able to compete in the Isle of Man TT. But even at that time, even as far back as 1989, when Steve Hislop did the double um, in the F1 race and the senior race, he said, and I quote, he says, I think the bikes are beginning to outgrow the circuit. Now that's in 1989 and here we are now in 2020 with far, far faster bikes and still no no sign of, of, of flowing up you know in 1991 he was also asked and it was a particularly bad year in 1991 for for, for for injuries 1991 he says I don't I don't agree with banning the banning the event um but you know perhaps to limit the the bikes to a 600cc limit to limit the power um now the interesting that this is again this is all prior to the 1992 race that we're about to talk about and when you look at how hard both Steve Hislop and Carl Fogarty pushed in this 1992 race. I hope it puts it in context, just how big a risk they were taking, and just how how <laughs> how much of an uh, a superhuman level they were on when competing in this 1992 uh, race. So, in the opening race, uh, the opening race of the week. Um, was the Formula 1 TT, which is held on the opening Saturday of the TT week after, hopefully, a week's worth of practice. And in the F1 TT, Carl Fogarty on his Yamaha starting fourth on the road, bolted away and built up a huge lead of nearly 40 seconds at one point, which is a long, long time uh, in, in, in bike racing. Now, Steve Hislop on the other hand, he was struggling because his Norton engine, the 588cc rotary engine, one of the most incredible sounding motors in motorsport history, it almost screamed, it almost sounded like a Formula One car engine. It was screaming high, high high-pitched noise. And actually, interestingly, this was around the same time as the Mazda 787B Le Mans car, which also used a rotary engine and also screamed at a very, very high-pitched note. But the problem with this rotary engine was it was very, very fickle, and it it was terrible. it ran incredibly hot. The exhaust of the Norton would actually run to 1100 degrees centigrade, when a normal bike racing exhaust, normal four-stroke bike racing exhaust, would sit at about 800cc. So if you raced the bike at night, you would see it glowing orange. It was just an incredible machine. And because of the unique character of the engine, the engine actually didn't provide much engine braking. So if you're in your car and you drop down a gear, you'll feel the car actually begin to slightly slowing down. It's called engine braking. Uh, this is happens on a motorcycle as well. But on these rotary engine motorcycles, the engine braking effect was not as much. Actually, you know, it's so... For his lop, he had to adapt his riding style massively because he was, he was was when he rolled off the throttle, he would normally get a little bit of help from the engine braking, but the bike would just coast on, so we had to make sure and actually slow the bike down quicker to be able to make the corners. It's quite a weird bike to ride, but the main issue was the overheating, and this was very much a problem in the opening F1TT race, and that meant that he had to limp the Norton around um, uh, for the whole race and, and didn't win on that particular day. But sadly, neither did Carl Fogarty, despite being way out in the distance, coming into the last lap, all of a sudden his gearbox expires, let's go, and he breaks down there and then. He's out the race, and Philip McAllen on his Honda goes on to win. So, Hislop no wins, Fogarty no wins. Um, so it all going to come down to the 1992 senior, a week later. Um, which is actually a, a bank holiday on the Isle of Man, such is the significance of the event. In between the event, both riders had a few days to to try and make, make as many changes as they could. Um, Carol Fogarty decided just to kind of leave things as they were. Obviously, the bike was, 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 was fast enough. For Hislop and the Norton boys, they had a bit more work to do. And what they did was they went up to a place called Jerby, which is an old um, disused airfield on the Isle of Man. And it's still used to this day for teams desperately trying to make changes in between races. Um but they went the Norton guys went up to Derby. Now remember they had absolutely no money to, you know, ship over any new parts or make anything drastically different. They were stuck with what they had. One of the problems they were experiencing was, um, you know, Steve Haslop, like many motorcycle racers, quite a, quite a, you know, a dimin- diminutive in stature. And on the motorcycle, obviously, when you're racing at 170, 180 miles an hour, the the force of the wind flowing over you is extraordinary. And what was happening was was that he was getting pushed back on the motorcycle more than he would like, and that was was putting more weight on the back wheel and lifting up the front wheel, which was causing instability, which is, you're absolutely the enemy on the Isle of Man TT course. Stability is absolutely everything. So, what they did was, they simply fitted a bigger front windscreen. If you look at... um John McGuinness, um, who's um, a 23-time TT winner. If you look at always his bikes, he always has particularly big front fairings and front screens on his bike, so that he can get tucked right in behind it to keep the bike nice and stable. So nice big screen, and they fitted a bigger screen on Steve Haslup's Norton, so he could get tucked right in behind. Uh, and, and that made a big, big difference in the stability. They also widened the handlebars and actually raised them slightly, again, to to aid the stability. And actually, interestingly, that's something that John McGuinness also does to this day. The final thing that they did, and the biggest problem that they had, was, um, was the cooling of the bike. Obviously, the bike engine was running far too hot, and they had to, to be able to try and keep it keep it cool. So they actually removed the front mudguard completely uh, and that actually helped with the airflow and they put bits of bits of gaffer tape basically on the side of the the fairing and the, the plastic bodywork that that then would then divert air into the radiators. Very rudimentary basic homebrew modifications, but they worked and they worked a treat. So, they came to the start line, the senior TT at the, at the point prior to the race, both riders were, of course, interviewed. And Steve Hislop, it was put to him, they say, everyone's saying this is going to be your last ever TT race. And he agreed. He says, yes. He says, this is likely to be my very last TT. I've I've, I've done my time here. I've won a lot of races. And uh, I want to, to focus on the short circuits and, and try something new. So it was very much a last chance saloon, all or nothing um, encounter. Now on sen- on the day of the senior TT the weather was sweltering hot and if you watch the race video back you'll see about 75% of the crowd are standing there with no shirts on because it was so hot and the the whole circuit lined with people waiting to see if this Norton motorcycle could win a TT for the f- senior TT for the first time since 1961 so at the Isle of Man TT, the way that it works, it's not like a normal a normal circuit race where um, the riders start in a, in a mass format and they they, ra- they race around. It's basically a time trial. Um, so the riders are set off in 10-second intervals and their time is measured. So there's no qualifying in terms of somebody's on pole position and somebody's in 10th. Everybody is measured from the minute that they, they, they pull off from the start line. Carl Fogarty was heading off at 4th on the road. Steve Hislop was all the way back at 19th in the road. So this gave gave Hislop a real challenge because he had to get his way through a lot of slower traffic. And because of the speed that both him and Carl Fogarty were riding at that was so superior to everybody else, um, he had a lot of work to do getting through slower traffic in front of him. So it's interesting to note at this point that if you study what, Carl Fogarty and Steve Hislop were talking about and saying before in the lead up to this race, neither were worried whatsoever about anyone else in the field. It was only about Hislop and Fogarty. So it was all down to this, and they tore off from the start. Now, Hislop in 1991, in the year previous, he'd gone absolutely maximum attack from the very word go in order to break Fogarty's resolve. uh uh, and win the race now at that point he was on the exotic bulletproof honda rvf with the norton he had to, to take a very different approach and he actually reverted back to what he referred to as his older style of riding where he got he settled in gently into a steady rhythm and tried to get steadied in and get comfortable and then work his way on from there and it worked because by the time that he reached the gooseneck on lap one, he was up by up by one second, and he was delighted about that. As they came into the pits at the end of lap two, this was at one of the key points of the race. So in, the, in, a, in a race, the Isle of Man TT senior race, there are six laps of the 37.7 mile course, and the riders are racing for nearly two hours, so it's incredibly, um, incredibly tough both mentally and physically. And one of the, there are, there are two pit stop opportunities at the end of lap two and at the end of lap four. Now, in those days, it was very much possible to do the whole race on uh, the same tyre. Nowadays, the riders will actually change tyres both at lap two and lap four. But at the end of lap two, um, Hislop came into the pits with um, a 2.8 second advantage. So a very, very slender advantage. But at that point, he, he deployed a tactical masterstroke. He decided to take the extra time for his pit crew to change his rear Michelin tyre. Now, of course, this caused extra time. Uh, um, but he knew that inevitably there would be a real battle towards the end of the race, and this would give him a much better performance in his tyre than his rival Fogarty. So he stayed in the pits a little bit longer, put the new tyre in. Fogarty didn't do so. He'd kept on the same tyre the whole race, and he, he, he tore out the pits uh, and was able to retake uh, the lead. But on this new tyre... What ensued then for the next two laps was just absolute, I mean, probably the greatest laps of of Steve Hislop's life from here on, because on that new tyre, he he just really tore off. And on lap four, he equaled his lap record from the previous year on the Honda RVF. Now, the difference between the full factory exotic one-off 1991 Honda RVF and this basically home-brewed Norton in 92, they were two very different motorcycles. The Honda had far greater performance and potential than the Norton, but this was just no ordinary race. And Also, it's worth noting that Fogarty's Yamaha was nothing special either, so that's very much important to note. So, at this point, Steve Hudslop just equaled his Honda RVF record, which everybody thought would have stood for years and was, as he came into the pits at the end of lap four, he had a 7.4 second advantage, which was as great as it ever got throughout the entire race. However, his team, um, understandably nervous, had a little bit of a slip up when when fueling the bike and trying to seal the fuel cap back on. And it took a calming word from team manager Barry Simmons to get his team to just uh, to relax, slow down, get the cap on and get Steve back out on the course safely. Unfortunately, this diminished his lead back to one second, so they'd lost 6.4 seconds in the pit stops to Fogarty. But again, what ensued was classic Hislop, and actually, in the final lap, it was classic Carl Fogarty. Going into the final lap, Steve Hislop held an advantage of 6.4 seconds, so hardly comfortable, but incredible to um, none nonetheless. And what what I th- I truly believe in this final lap absolutely epitomises um, the style and the approach uh, and and what made both men particularly special. Fogarty in this last lap he's six point four seconds behind. His bike his the exhaust on his bike is blown so there's a huge there's it's damaged. A lot of fixtures are rattling about on his bike and he's getting f- a mystery fluid which you can't really tell what it is starting to come up onto his visor and onto his leather suit. For most riders, this would be enough to pull over, but this, again, was no ordinary race. Fogarty did what Fogarty has become, you know, renowned for um, throughout his career. He grit his teeth harder than anyone else, went as hard as possible, and in the final lap, broke Steve Hislop's lap record by three seconds on a bike that was far from its best. So you're thinking pressure on Steve Hislop. Well, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, Steve Hislop's an incredibly serene, modest, gently-spoken, calm rider, and he was just able to manage the situation beautifully. Now, bearing in mind that his Norton would have been taking its very last gasps as well, and the fact that it was able to ride at that speed for over 200 miles is just extraordinary. But Hislop, in classic Steve Hislop serenity, just calmed down and was able to ride through the last lap at a beautifully controlled speed. However, because of the nature of their starting positions, there was a long wait of nearly three minutes for Hislop to come over the line. So Fogarty was over the line, and the whole island waited on tenterhooks as Steve Hislop made his way around the final few miles of the circuit. And then eventually... He came into view on the Glen Cuttery Road with his with his his his, his um, traditional bright pink helmet with the flying haggis on the front, his Arai helmet with the blue um, blue lightning bolts along the side, with his head tucked right behind that new taller screen of the plain white Norton. As he screamed into view, he came over the line, and it was just a waiting. And then everybody knew Steve Hislop had won. The greatest TT race of all time by just 4.4 seconds. So he'd only lost two seconds to Carl Fogarty, who'd beaten the lap record at the same time. To give you an idea just how far ahead and just how superior Carl Fogarty and Steve Hislop were that day, the man in third place, Robert Dunlop, was two minutes behind um, in third place. Absolutely extraordinary. Later Hislop was to declare this race as his as probably his best race in his career, and I can totally understand why. At the time the the national the British national press flocked to the island to report on this story. This you know this real you know rags to riches sort of story, um, David and Goliath, whatever you want cliche you want to use, but it was a, a bike that shouldn't have won, a team that shouldn't have won but the difference was they had a rider who 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 definitely should have won and did win uh now at the time, you know Norton, as I said, were in financial difficulty would be um would be an understatement and obviously this this for any brand this would this should have been a really great news day you know. British brand returns to win the first, you know, first British bike to win since 1961, and this was the first, this was the most attention that the Isleman TT had got since Mike Hillwood returned in 1978. But sadly, Norton were not were not able and and didn't capitalise on this commercial opportunity. One example which I found fascinating when when doing my research for this episode was what happened to team manager Barry Simmons, who was obviously who was the mastermind of this whole effort and the guy who convinced Steve Heslop to come and join the team and ride their bike. Barry Simmons, on return to the Norton factory, he was given a very warm welcome by all of the men who produced Norton's bikes at the time. They were delighted um, by the success. However, when going upstairs to um, sit down with, with senior management and the CEO at the time, David McDonald. Obviously, he's arrived back with the biggest prize in, arguably the biggest prize in motorcycle racing, the, the Senior TT Trophy. And all that CEO David McDonald was interested in was why the pit looked slightly messy on TV, because there was bits of paper everywhere. And as Barry Simmons said at the time, he says that probably summed up the attitude of the senior management of Norton at that particular time. So just after um, this triumph um, at the time Norton were really really struggling um, for, for cash. They were marred in um, marred an investigation. The previous CEO Philippe LaRue um, was involved in a lot of investigations um, um, from from the British government who was allegations of fraud and you know the Norton brand was being used to front up um, you know dodgy property investments and so on. And actually, some of the directors of Norton were eventually jailed um, because of some of this um, impropriety. Sadly, just a year after this, a momentous, um, a momentous triumph at the TT in 1992, uh, what should have been a real milestone moment for the brand, sadly in 1993, the brand was sold off to a Canadian firm and didn't resurface until many years later. As many of you listening to this podcast will know, Norton um, went into uh, as as a brand was revived in two thousand and eight, um, but sadly went into administration at the end of January twenty twenty. Um, the Norton brand did return to the TT um, initially with Michael Dunlop at the TT uh, in its very early days, uh, and then eventually managed to get riders like Josh Brooks, Dave Johnson, and even John McGuinness to ride. They're, they're beautiful-looking V4 um, um, Superbike. But sadly, the brand has been, again, surrounded in massive um, scrutiny as well. Um, the the owner, Stuart Garner, um, under investigation right now um, for pension fraud. Um, a lot of the Norton, um, pension, you know, Norton staff having their uh, pension schemes with Norton and are, are really struggling right now, and also uh, a lot of people who placed a, a sizable deposit and sometimes full payments for bikes will not receive these bikes, which is very, very sad in, indeed. And unfortunately, the Norton brand in the last couple of decades has been uh, has been plagued by these kinds of stories. So, amongst all the, the the doom and gloom, remember the day when Norton ruled the world at the Isle of Man TT in 1992, thanks to. Um, to Steve Hislop, one of the true um one of the true greats. If you enjoyed um this this story, um I can't recommend um, Steve Hislop's autobiography enough. It's simply called Hizzy, um, which was his affectionately, uh, affectionately known nickname, um H-I-Z-Z-Y. You'll be able to get it in any any bookshop or online or or whatever and it's a great read uh even if you're not a motorcycle racing fan um the actual honesty of steve writing his book uh, is extraordinary and sadly it was it was published um just at the point when when he he passed away um and it's uh you know he he will be he will really he has sorely sorely missed in one of the real legends of the other man tt so I hope you've enjoyed the story do check out um do check out um the book hizzy and also if you have amazon prime right now um steve Haslot the tt wins and the story of the 1992 senior tt are free on amazon prime right now so while we're we're all in in lockdown at the moment um, in, during the uh covid19 pandemic um cheer yourself up by watching some some good bike racing before I go, um, please don't forget to um, subscribe to our channel. Um, remember, we are still running a competition with our partners, Heeltread.com, for some lovely pairs of free motorsport-inspired socks. So if you subscribe to our show via the, our channel on Podbean, you will be automatically entered into the next three prize draws. Um, so keep an eye out on our Instagram page, at Motorsport for the next draw, which will happen in the next couple of days. Thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you again very soon.